42. That is the secret of the universe. 42. That's a good, that's a good place to start an episode with the secret of the universe. (laughs) So, Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the blasters and blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is King. The sky is the limit and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to let our guests introduce ourselves. Although I have the impression that these two need no introduction, but we're going to do it anyway. So we'll start with you, Mr. Eric Flint. Can you tell us about yourself and uh, to anybody who doesn't know? Um, yeah, um, my name's Eric Flint. I um, um, have written a lot of books by now. I, I, I lose track, but I'm somewhere a little over 70 novels. Um, about half of them are alternate history, uh, the majority of those part of the Ring of Fire series, which is what I'm best known for. Um, and that's a series that started with 1632, which was published in the year 2000. And since then, um, I, I actually just did a count for a, a little uh, pre, uh, essay I wrote. Um, I have authored a co-authored 26 novels through Bain Books. Wow through the our publishing house which is our own publishing house ring of fire press 37 other novels have been written by other people uh mostly through ring of fire press some of them through bane books um there's been a total of 17 anthologies of short fiction published and um uh, an electronic professional magazine has been running since may of 2007 it's a bi-monthly and we are now up to issue 97. Um, so it's gotten, it, it's a really kind of an enormous project. Um, and when people ask me what's my relationship to it, I kind of, the way Mozart is said to have done his music was he often played himself, of course, but he also would conduct, but he'd conduct from his own piano. And that's kind of what I do. Um, um, this is a collective enterprise, not just me. Um, and um, I keep a, I'm sort of on top of it quite well, but I'm not a control freak either. So uh, as, as as Chuck will, will testify to. So I like to give people plenty of leeway and, and elbow room um, to see what they can come up with. And partly I think that helps keep the series fresh. Um, one thing that I was concerned about when I started this thing and decided to make it a series, long series have a tendency to get stale. Um, it's hard to, to, to keep that from happening. And one of the reasons I think it happens is they tend to be written by one or two authors and they tend after a while to sort of um, know what they're, where they're going. And I find it, it helpful to have uh, surprises being sprung regularly, which, which happens because other people come up with ideas. And as long as they'll work, I, I try to fit them into the series and go from there. Um, in addition to the author history, I've written a lot of science fiction, some fantasy, more science fiction than fantasy. Um, um, 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to stop there. All right. What about you, Eric? Uh, who are you for people, or Eric? Sorry. What about you, Chuck? Who are you for people who don't know who you are? Uh, my name is Chuck Gannon. I'm an author. I'd better be here. I shouldn't be on here. Um, I write, uh, I've written nonfiction um, and written fiction. And uh, this was my first love. I knew I wanted to do this when I was 12. It took me a while and a circuitous path to get here, but here I am, and I'm not going anywhere soon, much to many people's frustration, perhaps, but there you go. No, you're amazing. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably best known for science fiction. Uh, most people connect my name uh, with the uh, with the Canary Orton series. Uh, that is not in any way saying that, that uh, what I've done hasn't been, uh, for me, hugely important and hugely gratifying in the Ring of Fire series, but the bottom line is, that Eric Flint's name is associated <laughs> with that. And it's usually Eric Flint and some other guy or gal. You know, that's that's pretty yeah, much yeah. what happens. Um, so I'm but there's known. amazing authors who've done it. Eric doesn't pick anybody who's not worth being in there. So true, true. And I've I've uh yeah, absolutely. Um I'm I'm doing some of the same things uh in that uh, like I said, it's it, mostly I'm known for hard science fiction. I have been recruited not to say Dragoon, into writing um, uh, space opera, something that's more like space. What, what other people consider science fiction, and I consider veering towards space opera, which probably tells you something about my take on hard science fiction. Um, and I've written alternate history, and I have now, uh, just in the last year, um, I, I guess you would call the uh, the Black Tide Rising series something someplace between uh, it's urban sci-fi, essentially dystopic alternate history. Um, um, <laughs> and uh, this November, uh, the first novel in the Vortex of Worlds series uh, called uh, This Broken World uh, comes out, and um, that's fantasy, though, right? That's fantasy. I'm so excited by this. That's epic fantasy with more than a few slipstream elements. Uh, to return, however, to only stealing from the very best, um, between, between having worked in, in War World back in the early 90s, uh, which was it's associated with uh, Jerry Purnell's name, but was mostly uh, sort of, I guess you could say, shepherded and patched together by John Carr, um, I, I sort of learned a little bit about shared universes there. And then, of course, I have been working in in only the best and only the biggest uh, in in um, Ring of Fire, watching watching carefully as I went. Um, uh, the bottom line is that there's a separate imprint at Chris Kennedy Publications called Beyond Terra Press. Beyond Terra Press is basically if you if it's something set in the Kane universe, uh, you're either going to find it at Bain or you're going to find it at Beyond Terra Press. Um, and that's, uh, and that's because there's a lot of folks who want to tell stories and I guess, I guess it, it's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe I, uh, maybe this is a way in which, in which Eric and I are, are, uh, similar. I never really thought this, but perhaps we write the sort of stories that make other people want to jump on the bandwagon because it wasn't me going out and beating the bushes. It was me having people come up to me and say, when can I play in your sandbox? And actually, it was Eric who allowed, the, who made the first one of those take place, which was not made, but allowed it to, which was Lost Signals, which gets to exactly what he's talking about. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. Some people were concerned when they realized that I was going to open it up as an anthology and have 20 other people come in there. 
Uh, mine not being by any means the longest. As a matter of fact, if you can believe it, I wrote something in my own anthology that was the one of the shorter ones. Uh, and for those of you who are familiar with my, I don't my, believe. Yeah, my my. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? You only published it, so you're gonna just have to go and have that that uh, that sort of uh, cognitive dissonance moment all by yourself there. Uh, uh, but it. But at any I think rate, I know one of those people who is probably knocking on your door with yeah. a Gazelle. And and the the uh, the the bottom line is though that keeping, I I agree with everything Eric said about you kind of know where the authors know where they're going, and once you figure out the author, you kind of know where they're going. Um, there's absolutely that's a huge part of it, and that's why Beyond Terra Press has now sort of taken a whole new series called Murphy's Lawless, which parallels. It is not really a side series. It parallels and then crosses back and forth with the main Kane Riordan arc. Um, uh, and uh, and then I'm doing a then I'm doing a, a, a collaboration with Eric called Triage. He's gonna he's we're we're trading roles. He's gonna be in my universe and David Weber called Misbegotten. And those are going to probably come 2022. One will be written in 2023, the other. Um, and uh, the thing that I really like about having the different voices is because that's like reality. There's something about one author's voice sort of framing reality that can be very, very guiding and comforting in a way. But I think it can also become almost hard to believe. It's it's like the it, you even if it's a very, very a delicate hand of the craftsperson. You can tell it's the same craftsperson's hand. And I really like getting all those other vibes into the universe and making it feel more real, just the way the universe is, filled with different people with very different perspectives. And it's it's been wonderful and flattering and surprising. And that's what I do. Uh, okay. I got um, I got a step away for like one minute so you guys okay. just keep going i'll be right back all right well the next part of the introduction dear listener is how we found them but uh i actually found both of them through seska when we were setting up the podcast and she said you know if you want to be a real serious podcast you have to ask real serious authors and you can't I did be goofing off all the time i know i'm just giving you not. grief uh, but seska said we've got to have these She, she was she was bossing us around and saying that there's more out there than just the small circle of people that we knew, Chris Winder and I. And so we had uh, Mr. Gannon on for back in the um, when we were still sci-fi shenanigans. And we just sort of stayed in touch uh, with all of them. And then we had them on most recently, at least with Eric, for the Dragon 2021 nomination episode. And I was in intrigued Chuck enough was that there. I bought the first that was book. So. That was Eric and me, I think. Chuck was there. <laughs> you were, but but that's they not where I met you. I'd already known you at that point. You. Actually, no, no, I already the had only one from that episode. Jr. Every author on that episode won a Dragon Award this year because it was Chuck, no, Eric, and John Brown, and they all won. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Not um, saying we had anything yeah, so... to do with it, but it is kind of cool. But we also interviewed people that didn't win, so that's just sort of uh, hindsight bias on your part. Well, that's just You're because only be one person can win. Jeez. But yeah, so uh, I understand that uh, that Eric Chuck was there. But I'm just was was listing where I met both of them individually. But uh, Doc, where did you meet them both? Well, I actually was very familiar with both their works before meeting them. 
because um, I I think I've read Air, uh, the 1632 book like three times before I actually ever met Eric because I really enjoyed it and I was really fascinated by it and I read some of the, the gazettes and other things too. I'm not sure exactly which one of your books I read for first, Chuck, but then I met them both at Liberty Con and got to know them also through my work with Dragon Con and just them being amazing people and actually willing to talk to the sidekick who was following around Jody. So well, the, the good news is that it's for the first time, I think in over a year we've gotten, well, I didn't meet them at a bar. So, I mean, you should put that in your calendar. Oh, there was definitely a bar involved. I've tend bar at Liberty Con. <laughs> No, no, no. These two individuals are, are much too dignified to go to your bar shenanigans. Well, when it's hosting the pub, the book party or whatever, you know, JR, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, yeah. JR. Just because you don't get out doesn't mean other people don't. All right, all right. So let's ask them the religion question. We see if they get to stay. They do get to stay because they're awesome and amazing. So, gentlemen, we're first we do three sci-fi properties. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Battlestar Galactica. Which one's your favorite? I actually never really watched Battlestar Galactica, so I can't express myself on that. Um, I tend to enjoy Star Wars more than Star Trek, but I approve of Star Trek quite a bit more than I do of Star Wars. Um, um, I don't know if anyone, either of you, any of you read, David Brin has written essays on this, and I think David takes it too seriously, but what he says is, in fact, accurate. Um, um, you don't want to look too closely at the Star Wars premises. <laughs> no, they fall apart. Really, really don't. Um, um, just like you don't want to look too closely at the premises of Lord of the Rings, um, uh, where the peasants always love the king, and um, and you know you've got the the wonderful nobility and. I have a friend of mine, uh, Andrew Dennis, who's a co-author. He he's often talked about writing a a version of Lord of the Rings where the orcs and Sauron are actually the good guys and are trying to overthrow this grotesque medieval society. Um, but nonetheless, Star Wars is a lot of fun. There's no question about it. And um, I enjoy Star Trek too, but I, I've always thought it was. Uh, a little too tidy, I guess. Um, and like I said, I never really watched Battlestar Galactica. Um, so I will stop there before I get <laughs> any, any more trouble. Um, <laughs> How many fan bases can you can you alienate in five? Yeah, minutes? I know, I know, I know exactly. <laughs> okay, we, we'll we'll run we'll run that survey after this airs. Um, so my. My first question would be, which Battlestar Galactica are you talking about? I'll let you pick. Okay, so if I'm allowed like to both. use the more, if I'm if I'm allowed to use the most recent one, and we ignore the last season, um, I will definitely say in in every regard, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, there's there's actually some attempt to obey physics uh, as we understand it. Um, I definitely agree with what Eric says, and and uh, and while I'm not as, I, I I don't 
David Brin is vociferous about many things, and this is this is one of them. And I and and like and like Eric is saying, I I would agree with the general premise. My attitude was, and I think I wrote this back in the '90s, nonfiction. Um, there's a book called Rumors of War and Infernal Machines. If people want to read about the history of science fiction influencing technological development, um, Star Wars is really. I go to a Star Wars movie and I, I actually I put my head in the same place as when I go to see a Marvel movie. You know, the, the bottom line is it's it's going to be there's a reason it's called space opera, you know, and it's the opera. And it's there, you know, whereas whereas Edna Mode says no capes, Star Wars says all capes. And um, and so I think that the, so for me, if I was it's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, but frankly, if you look under the hood. It's a terrible thing to say about something that bills itself as, as, as science fiction. Maybe it's not a terrible thing to say, but I think there's probably almost as much uh, plausibility or more plausibility in the Marvel universe. So, so that's um, there you go. Um, and and so yeah, I'm a. It's definitely Battlestar Galactica. Um, there you go. Okay, wonderful. Um, I definitely understand. I have to suspend. Uh... The critical brain functions when I go to watch any of those kind of things as well. So now on to the fantasy ones: Sword in the Stone, Lord of the Rings, or the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I'm going to have to go Lord of the Rings here. I'm I'm just um, um, I have issues with Chronicles of Narnia. Um, which you know um i didn't think i'd stump eric i just don't you know um they're well written but um you know they have a message and uh it's a message i don't particularly care for not your cup of tea is my favorite way of saying it yeah it's not it's not uh lord of the rings uh i enjoy um I, when I first time I read it, I was, was oh quite young. I was I don't know twenty years old, twenty one, something like that. And uh, I, I I adored it. Uh, I read it since then, and um, I don't find I enjoyed as much with further rereading. Um, but um, but it's um, it it's certainly um, well. Let's put it this way. Um, my wife and I, Lucille and I, uh, gave a copy of Lord of the Rings to our daughter, Elizabeth, when she was a youngster, and asked her to read it and see what she thought. And um, after she read it, she said, well, I enjoyed it, but it's awfully derivative. Um, and <laughs> we said, no, Kathy, you don't get it. <laughs> Everything else is derived from this. So that's part of the issue with Lord of the Rings is it sets so many of the basic framework and trope of of a certain type of fantasy, what's often called epic fantasy or sword and sorcery or whatever, that it's um, it's kind of hard to get past that. Um, um, I just don't have the same reaction to Chronicles of Narnia. I just, you know, I, it, it, it just doesn't really do anything for me. Well, Chuck, how about you? So, uh, Lord of the Rings, no doubt. Um, it 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 
I think it endures because it was the first of what it was. And it really probably doesn't have, if you want to say things improve on it, that's sort of like saying time marches on. And yeah, we learn a few things, but given what it was, when it was, when, when it was crafted without even, you know, and the interesting thing being that it was never crafted with its, with its ultimate, you know, collective publication in mind and certainly not the sort of, uh, the sort of cult following that it uh, that it attained. I read it actually. I was uh, about twelve, I think. I can't remember if I think I'd fallen. I, I'd stumbled across The Hobbit in junior high school, and they had. And not only was it a fun story, um, a little bit simple but fun, but there were these cool maps in it, you know. And it's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> and it turned out. That there was a whole trilogy out there. I think that was probably the first time that I ever used the word trilogy, and I didn't get a chance to. But I don't think they had it in the library, if you can believe that, in a in a in a junior high school library. But um, but lo and behold, I, I I got sick. I had a fever that kept me home for from school for about a week, and on the second day of that, I think my father showed up with a uh with with one of the incarnations of the book now they really didn't know they god god love them for trying but it was the second it was the two towers but that didn't Ooh. stop me i just plunged on in and little did i know that i got the best book first because i do think that that in the same way that sort of the 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 second of the star wars movies the empire strikes back is arguably from my standpoint best of the franchise uh, the, the Twin Towers is where you have, you've got some of what I would say the most interesting byplay, the most is at stake, the outcomes are uncertain, uh, the, all, sorts of, all sorts of balls are in the air being juggled and you don't know where they're going to come down yet. And uh, so I, I then dutifully read one and three and uh, I was hooked. And I, I think Chronicles of Narnia is, is they're fine. I, I don't... Um, you know, I guess I guess my attitude is I, I don't if uh, message, um, yeah, it's there. It, it's not how meaningful it is to me. That's a different issue. I find the Paralandra trilogy probably more interesting in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, and for anybody who hasn't read the Screw Tape Letters, that's just a fascinating book. Period. Um, and as far as Sword of the Stone, I find T. H. White. He's the sort of author as a professor I would resist assigning, and would it, simply because I find it's a little, yeah, it's a little heavy going there at times. It's, uh, I don't know that his prose has aged. I can see that. I feel the same way about Faulkner. About what? <laughs> Faulkner. I don't uh, think Faulkner. Oh no, no, no! I adore Faulkner. Oh, I Eric. Oh, I like Faulkner yeah. too. But I like him for different. But you were an well, English professor. That's not. I I liked him long before. I liked him before uh, I was seventeen, and I discovered as I lay dying, and I said, "Wow, this guy is taking huge chances, and not all of them work. But the chances he took, he broke ground. A lot of people use Faulknerian methods, and they'd be they would be aghast to be told that in fact, you know who you know who kind of brought that into style." You're not going to like to hear it. I think so. I, part of very resentful of my teacher uh, who kept telling me I was using run-on sentences. And I'm like, they're shorter than his. The, the, the advice I give people is part of what the way people react to a given author is based on the book they first get introduced to 
that author and all too many people get introduced uh, in in high school or, or college English classes with Sound and the Fury. Uh, or maybe if you're someone more fortunate, Absalom, Absalom, or Light in August. But if you start with the Reavers, yeah, that's a you very will get Faulkner style and an opening to a novel that is hysterically funny. Um, I don't know. I huh? don't remember the guy's name was Fleming. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> So I always recommend, well, start with the Reavers. Um, but I really do like Faulkner. Um, um, I don't like everything by him, but um, there's a whole lot of things I do like about him. Um, and on the flip side, the, the famous American author I really don't care for at all is uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, and the reason is basically because the themes that seem to preoccupy him and the questions he wants to deal with are all ones that I'd pretty well settled for myself by the time I was 17. And, you know, I just find him tedious after a while. And, and uh, there's a scene, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, that's it. Uh, just that there's a, there's a um, I, I will say that I think that if anybody out there is thinking of writing, approach if if you're if you think your avenue to that is through an mfa program think very carefully then think <laughs> carefully again go to sleep come back and spend a whole day thinking about that idea um but one of the one of the good things that you can take away from that is is uh, this herd in one of those classes i i was not i do not have an mfa but it's like first read faulkner for the beauty and the novelty of language and then read Hemingway to get it out of your system. So <laughs> there's, <laughs> there you go. Whether that's wisdom or just or just waggishness, I can't say, but you've got it there now. Oh, there you go. Um, that is good to know. I did not so, get an MFA, so I will uh, accept that and move on. Yeah, uh, do, do, save your money. I only know two uh, people who got about MFAs. One of them does write and writes very well, but I think that's just not the product of the MFA. And the other one, I really don't understand their writing anyways. Uh, but that's okay. We're not here to talk about uh, educational choices. We're talking about sci-fi in this case. So what was your first love? Was it science fiction or was it fantasy? Science fiction. I didn't even read any fantasy for uh, um, the the first science fiction book I read uh, was uh, Robert Heinlein's Citizen of the Galaxy, which my mother got for me when I was on my 12th birthday. And then I read uh, Andre Norton's Star Rangers. And then I read Tom Godwin's. It was called The Space Prison or The Survivors, one or the other. Um, I read a lot of Heinlein at that point, and also a lot of Andre Norton. I didn't read Andre Norton's fantasies. I just wasn't. You know, actually, the first fantasy I can really remember reading was Lord of the Rings. And I did that just because it had gotten to be something of a, uh, you know, a cultural phenomenon by then. And... Also, my uncle, uh, Tordney, had told me when I was a teenager, he had read it when it first came out, and he loved it. 
And he told me, boy, you got to read this. And I didn't at the time, but I first heard about it from him. But no, I read science fiction uh, pretty much exclusively. Um, now, I have to tell you, though, a bigger literary influence on me came when I was um, 16, I believe. I was working. Uh, my father had a ski resort back then before he went bankrupt with it. And um, I worked there in the summer. And um, the ski resort, the, the, the chairlift would run during the summer. Nobody's skiing. But, you know, you could ride it all the way to the top, walk around, come back down, you know. Um, but it had a mid-ramp halfway through. And my job was to sit there all day and tell people, don't get off here. Keep going to the top. That was my job all day. Um, this is pretty boring. Um, and it's a very small town in the area. I had gone through and finished all my science fiction books and the two I could find in the, in, in the, in the uh, drugstore at, at school. So I was kind of desperate for something to read. And there was a stack of Westerns in this little cabin I was working in, stacked up there, and I was under no circumstances going to read those damn things. Um, but I finally just got desperate. Um, so I, I read one, and it, it, as it turned out, it was Luke Short's Bounty Guns, uh, which is very good, and Luke Short's one of the top authors in Westerns. But I became hooked on Westerns um, and um, read a lot of them, and that really has influenced my writing probably more than anything. 1632 is a Western, if you know what to look for. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. No. My dad, you know, my dad loved it. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a collective protagonist. It's basically, you know, the setting of the very classic Western trope. The, the, the ruthless, powerful ranchers are crumpling all over the homesteaders and and into town rides the fastest gun in the West, but nobody knows he is the fastest gun in the West. And he gets attracted to the refined girl from the East. You know, if you know what to look for, that's what 1632 is. Um, so actually, my main literary influences are Westerns and the, and the movies of Akira Kurosawa. Um, science fiction is the, the, the genre I like to work in because it gives me the most freedom and latitude. Um, but it's actually not really shaped the way I think of a story and tell one. Um, anyhow, I'm going to stop there. But uh, fantasy was never... I eventually did read a number of fantasies, but uh, it was never any... Um, and actually, the first novel I ever wrote was a fantasy, but it was a... It was a very odd kind of fantasy. It was modeled after 17th century satires. And um, um, eventually got it published. It's called Forward the Mage. But um, um, that's a really kind of an oddball book. Um, there's a kind of, of amusing story about that, which is that my um, I got an agent based on that book because she really liked it. Uh, but she warned me, she said, it's going to be a very hard book to sell. And, but she thought Dave Hartwell at um, Core Books might like it. And so she sent it to him. 
and and David did like it, and he tried to persuade Tom Doherty, who was you know the big shot at at Tor Books, to buy it, and Tom would not do it. He said, "No, it, it first of all, it's it's weird. Um, it's a tri- it's the first book in a, in, in a series um, by a completely unknown author. No, we're not going to buy it." And years later. I met Tom for the first time. Uh, and by then I was quite a successful author. And so I went up to him and introduced him myself to him. And I told him this story of how he had rejected my first novel. And this is normally every author's sort of pipe, you know, pipe dream of the day you can tell the the, the editor first rejected you, you know. <laughs> and but I, I actually thanked him because um, that would have been a terrible book to start my career with um, because I would have been typecast forever as a really weird cult writer kind of. Um, and as it was by the time it, it was in my 12th book published. So, you know, it sort of fit into a framework, but it's not really what people think of me as. I've always thought that story was funny anyway. Um, well, you might want to read the companion book first. That's called The Philosophical Strangler. It's, it's, it's more accessible than For the Mage. They're, they're com- One can be read as a sequel to the other, vice versa. It's, um, okay. um, but the one I actually published first was Philosophical Strangler. And... Uh, that was my third solo book published. I published it uh, right after 1632, and Jim Bain thought I was absolutely crazy to do that. Um, he said, you're, you're batshit crazy. He said, you've just written a book that is a, a breakthrough novel for you. You know, that's what you should be concentrating on and, you know, form your brand, etc. Instead, you want me to publish this, 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 this weirdo comic fantasy where the hero is a serial murderer, seriously. And, um, but I'd lived with that story since I was 22, because that's when I started writing it, uh, 1969. And by now we're in 2002. So I kind of got stubborn about it. And, uh, you know, Jim agreed to publish it. So. And well, how about you, Eric? Uh, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? You mean Chuck? Not Chuck. Sorry. Uh, looking at Chuck, and for some reason, I said your name. Uh, I apparently did not get enough sleep last night, gentlemen. I'm sorry. Um, I would. So I'll keep it short. Uh, science, uh, science fiction, probably first, but that's because for me there was this thing called uh, the, the what what was it called the National Scholastic Library. So when you're in, you know, I, I'm, I'm a child of the 60s and that meant there were book fairs and that meant there were all the sort of, you know, introductory books that were definitely what we would now consider YAs. Um, and uh, there were a bunch of those that were that were themed along the science fiction. It was, you know, it was it was the age of Apollo. Um, I was very much I, I had probably. Some adults probably thought a distressing amount of information about the space program at that age, um, and 
And so that was that was a very big influence. I, th I think the first really influential science fiction book I read, though, was War of the Worlds. And just first of all, because it's a it's a it's a it's a fascinating book to me in a lot of ways. But I love the ending that that H.G. Wells puts on it, that the the uh, the, the protagonist says, you know, that after after the tripods had fallen, they went and they looked at the, the Martians. And at first they looked very alien. But as they started sort of looking at them more closely, they wondered, you know, are they so very unlike us? And is this something we could become if our planet became cold? and we became desperate and is this what we would look like and what we would do and uh, i thought that was a very interesting thing given how this the the actual impetus for the story is he was out walking uh in the fields with his brother and his brother was uh was talking about uh, how they were talking about tasmania and all of the extinctions that were going on there and his brother was sort of uh sort of worked up and said, oh, how would we like it if somebody came from an, another planet and started wiping us out? And H.G. Wells said, aha, I think I've heard it. <laughs> a winning story if I've ever. Uh, and um, and so so that was, those were the major influences upon me, no doubt. So, I, and I think that's actually still very pertinent to this day, that kind of question and answer of what would we do in that. Um, I actually have a, my wallet looks like, has the, the book cover of War of the Worlds on it. Mm. And uh, because I, I thought it was very apropos, when I got it and uh, because I love science fiction. But what is it that you both love about the speculative fiction genre that draws you to this for your writing and reading? Wait, say that again. What is it that you love about genre, this genre? About it, it to write in it. To write in it, on, but also you read it. So, um, well, let me start with writing. Um, yeah, you have way more latitude in uh, in science fiction. <laughs> I mean, other genres. <laughs> place much greater limits on you. Uh, I mean, let's take mysteries. There's basically three characters in a mystery. There's the murderer, the victim, and the detective. That's basically it. And um, every uh, murder mystery, and they're all murder mysteries. You know, you, you almost never get a, a mystery about somebody who, you know, stole a, a car. Uh, it, it's, you know, somebody's got to get bumped off. And those are your three characters, and and it's essentially endless permutations on that on that theme. And it's not that I enjoy reading them, but I just I don't think I'd want to be constrained to writing that way. And it's also the reason I don't write westerns as much as I was influenced by them. I mean, the problem again, westerns, you know, you got a lot of constrictions on you, and in science fiction, you have very very few, um, and. For that reason, also, publishers tend to give you a lot more leeway. Now, when I say give you a lot more leeway, that's only as long as you're selling. Um, but but still, that's more leeway than you're going to get most other genres. So I've never really considered writing in any other um, genre. Um, uh, you know, there, there's crossover and I mix and match and stuff, but it's always basically 
what you can call speculative fiction or whatever. Um, as far as reading it, I actually am less, um, let's put it this way. I read much more broadly than I write. Okay. As far as fiction, I will read, um, I've read a lot of different kinds of fiction, all kinds of, of, you know, ranging from, you know, quote, great literature to, you know, um, like I said, Westerns, mysteries, um, you know, so I, I, science fiction is undoubtedly the single largest chunk of what I've read in my life, but it's, it's by no means, whereas in comparison, science fiction is all I've ever written. Um, so that's kind of the difference for me. And the, 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 question again is, the question is, I'm sorry. How does your love of this genre transition into your both reading it and writing it? Like, what so, is it that you love of this about the genre? Firstly, firstly, to catch us up a little bit, everything that Eric said, ditto in terms of freedom, latitude, um, uh, and, and the freedom to create worlds, to ask really big questions. And sometimes one of the latitudes is your ability to ask questions about this world without having to tie it to all of the, the shibboleths of the moment of this particular party or that particular policy or that. But you can ask the questions. And I, I, I'm not talking about the sort of things that, that are, are thin disguises of, of you know, it's, it's a re-wrappering of something that's going on right now. I'm talking about something more like Brave New World, where there's a much bigger question being asked there about the methods and and if you go down that path of of you know as he says as, as Mustafa Man says early in the book stability stability everything that that's the key stability what happens when that becomes too driving uh, a a an, an objective what dies one of the things that we see die is art unpredictability passion a whole lot of things uh, and and the different mechanisms and to me that is a that's just the, the notion that you can you can write a book and you can ask any question you want and it does not have to come under the scrutiny of yeah but what does that mean about right now and anybody who wants to put it there well that's that's not really apples and oranges that's more like apples and studebakers so if they want to do that they can do that <laughs> um and and the other thing is uh, there was a uh, there was a guy i believe who was asked about the space program and why he was so this was a congressional hearing it goes back to the uh right after world war ii i believe how should we spend money on it and and somebody asked him his name was kittridge um why is uh, why are you so interested in this stuff why are you worried about what we're going to be doing 10 15 20 years from now and kittridge said i'm interested in the future because it's where i'm going to spend the rest of my life and i have oh, I like often that. thought and I've often thought that that's why there's there's more than a little bit of futurist impulse in most of my hard science fiction. One of the reasons I try to keep it grounded is not because there's anybody who gets into science fiction thinking it's going to be predictive. That's a fool's errand. However, as a as a as what I would call grounded possibilities, that's really useful and really fascinating for me. So that's. That's why I live there. I love the fantasy as well, but you're going to find even in my fantasy, when you see it, it follows a lot of those same sort of internal rules. It's, it's, um, 
it's not high fantasy where things come in, things go out, you know, and, and how do they and where do they come from? The, who knows? Um, not That's not my style. <laughs> okay. That's an in-depth answer. I, I dig it. It's a good thing Doc is prodding me because I was so interested in listening. I forgot I was supposed to be the host. But I, uh, I have had this happen also- at DragonCon with both of them on panel. Indeed. So many authors let their uh, real life experiences influence the kind of stories they tell. So was there any specific formidable moment that you think shaped you as a storyteller? And this time we're going to mix it up and and Chuck, you get to answer first. Uh, Yeah, I think there is. It was a formative moment for me in a lot of ways. Without going into the details of, of this very much, I was brought up in a, in a, in a family w- which focused a lot more on conventional religion uh, than I do. And the, the, the magnitude of that understatement is pretty profound. Um, and I went to see, it was in its first run, 2001 Space Odyssey, and I think it was Pentecost Sunday, strangely enough. And if you want to talk about a movie to take, a, I think I was nine, 10, nine, eight. And, you know, for me, although I loved the space part of it and was totally freaked out and terrified by the end of it, the thing that really stuck with me was how, and, and Kubrick was exactly the right guy as a, as a filmmaker for the job. It was that first, you know, Donna, sorry for the sexist term, but it was, that was the label on the film, the dawn of man. And there's a perfectly good explanation for not, you know, how did we get here? Why did we prevail? And, and it was about weapons, you know, and, and, and it was only later on that I learned, I mean, at eight or nine, I didn't realize this, but by about 16 or 17, I realized the profundity of the fact that if you remember the sequence, they use, they first use the, the, uh, the bone to defend, to, to bring down game and then to defend themselves against like wild animals. And then lastly, to kill other apes at a waterhole. And in, in a spasm of triumph, the, the ape, called the uh, Moonwatcher, I think, throws it up into the air, and it's a cut. That bone cuts to a satellite, but that's not just any satellite. That's an orbital ICBM silo. And we go from what would be, and remember, we we're talking 1968 or 69, the first weapon to the last weapon in one cut. And for me, I just said, all the things that you can do with narrative, all the things you can do with images, um, sky's the limit. You can talk about all of time. And it, it jarred me, in a sense, out of what I would say um, was a path of accepting a lot of what I just received from, from my family as, uh, as how the world is, where the world came from. And I, uh, I didn't accept it quite so easily anymore. It's a good answer. All right. And now to you, uh, Eric. What, was there any specific formidable moment that you feel like shaped you as the storyteller? Um, I can't, no, I can't actually think of any particular one. Um, um, I was actually, it goes back a long ways with me. I mean, my first, I'll call it a novel for lack of a better term. I wrote when I was 14, um, I say kind of a novel. There was no dialogue in it. There were no characters in it. 
Um, it was simply a, um, a depiction of World War III. Um, and then I started writing other books. By the time I was 16, I'd written three or four novels, and one of which I thought was good enough. I paid a professional typist 60 bucks to turn into a real manuscript. Now, 60 bucks is a lot of money for a 16 year old kid in 1963, 64. Um, it was promptly rejected. Um, so I can't actually remember a time where, where, where storytelling hasn't really been kind of part of just the way I look at the world. Um, so I, I, no, I can't really think of any specific thing. Um, and I will leave it at that. <laughs> well, now we get to ask the fan questions, which are always ones I enjoy asking because they're fun. Um, have you had anybody do any cool fan art or cosplay one of your characters yet? We'll start with Chuck because we keep letting Eric go first. So. <laughs> Chuck? Uh, it was shortly after the second book in the Kane Riordan series that uh, I got a bunch of essentially blueprints. Uh, they Somebody sent me that, and then that became the basis of getting a whole bunch more done, which only appear to this day in the uh, the expanded edition of the first book, Fire with Fire, um, in the electronic version. Um, so that was one very cool thing. And, and then I think the first time... Again, uh, the the cosplay first cosplay was uh, was at LibertyCon. Uh, somebody came as uh, as um, as one of the characters. He was uh, he was he was named uh, if you know Christopher Robin, um, and he uh, he came as his character, whose nickname of course was was Tig, um, for for obvious reasons. And uh, he came dressed exactly as that guy would have been dressed, so that was pretty cool. And it's it's been since then. And now Lost Soldiers, I mean, they're all from the latter half of the 20th century. I, can, I wouldn't even know. I mean, so many people are cosplaying that anyhow. I'd have no, no, no idea if they're doing mine or just because it's cool to do. So. Well, how about you, Eric? I mean, nothing really like that, but um, I, probably the single most... Um, I don't know what you call it, striking or, or startling or unexpected um, um, interaction to me. One of my characters was um, early in, in, in my career, I, I wrote, um, a sh it wound up being a short novel for one of um, David Weber's Hunter Harrington anthologies. And um, the character, one of the characters I developed was a uh, character named Victor Kasha, um, who's a, a very edgy kind of character. And um, I, uh, I modeled him after a, a Russia, a Czechist in the Russian Civil War around the year 1919. Um, which is a type of person most Americans don't know anything about historically. Um, this is a period before the later NKVD and what people think of as Stalin's uh, secret police. This was during the Civil War. Um, 
And I was kind of nervous because I sort of didn't know how much people were going to like this character. Uh, David liked him, but, you know, fine. But um, as time passed, I, I began realizing that, that he'd become kind of a cult figure, which startled the hell out of me. But, I mean, a whole lot of fans, they had come up to me convinced, I really like, you know, and it's like, all right, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes characters will surprise you. You don't really know how people are going to, you know, react to them. And, um, and it's never stopped. I mean, it's just, it's been almost 20 years now. And, uh, in fact, he, he's a major character in this novel. It's just coming out in two weeks. Um, he keeps chugging right along. Um, I he's can't remember my kids. Huh? He's older than some of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I will say I had one other. Uh, after I wrote Philosophical Strangler, a fan came up to me at a convention a few months later, and he was very upset with me. Uh, he practically had tears in his eyes. And he said, I, I, I don't understand how how someone who, who wrote 1632 could write a novel whose hero is a serial murderer. And I didn't say anything, but I felt like saying, it's a fucking comedy for crying out loud, you know? Um, I, the humor went right by him. <laughs> I mean, you know, it. it uh, uh, what what Graybore is in in the book, he's the archetype of the working stiff. That you know, hey, it's a job. You know, uh, it, it, yeah, it's cruddy work, but you know, pays well, works steady, and you know, what else do you get in life? Uh, and, and he's sort of the ultimate proletarian you can think of, and and, and it, it. I wrote it precisely for the. Uh, over the top, you know, humor of it, but it just—I learned from that that you never really quite know how people are going to react to what you read or what you write, and uh, you will—you will be surprised. Um, sometimes very pleasantly surprised, but you will be uh, often surprised and sometimes taken aback when you realize. Let me put it to you this way. There's the book the author writes, and then there's the book the author, the, the readers read, and those aren't necessarily the same book. J.R. Uh, and I have this argument about Pern. He keeps telling me she wrote science fiction, but that's that's not what this is. So he has that argument with me weekly. So, but uh, uh, I gotta, I'll be back. Okay. What, what? So, Eric, um, you just want to keep calling me Eric. <laughs> I, I, if it makes you feel any better, I kept calling my my young, my son after my youngest brother today too. It, it's a day. <laughs> um, I'm still working off Dragon Brain. Um, I'm really convinced. So. Have you had anybody ask for your signature away from a convention or an official book signing? Uh, 
think only once or twice. Um, and, and it was, it was something I didn't, didn't expect, but it was still related enough. You know, it was, it was at a, um, it was something that I think was related to, to publishing and I wasn't featured there, but somebody apparently recognized me. I don't know how that happened, but they did. It's the hair. And so that's, that's what, that's the only stuff like that. So not a lot. No. It's the hair. You have a good head of hair, which is not always the standard. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything, but okay. It makes you recognizable. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, mm. Not in a bad I feel way. Attacked. No, no, but I mean, yikes! I don't know how many friends you lost there. You know, I don't <laughs> know. I saw a lot of. I saw a lot more people wearing hats at Dragon Con panels. <laughs> okay. You saw what? <laughs> That's got to be a way to get being a harassed. Huh? She was mocking us. Uh, uh, hair challenge, defolically challenged. There we go. JR, okay. Uh, I, I I was teasing Chuck that he's recognizable because he has good hair. I used to. All right, talk. Save yourself <laughs> from yourself. <laughs> gotta go back. <laughs> okay. I gotta, get, I gotta get a Nobel for my hair one day. I can see it now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Hurry up. Hurry up. Okay. Eric, has anybody asked for your signature away from a book signing or a convention? Say again. Has anybody asked for your signature away from a book signing or a convention? What do you mean? Does anybody ask for this? Uh, I'm not following. You sign a book. Just like, yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, people ask. I mean, you know, they, they set up signing sessions, but you know, yeah, there are times people just come up to you and, and, and then ask you if you sign a book. Yeah, sure. I remember the first time it happened to me, I was sort of puzzled. It was like, well, no, I mean, it's like, why do you want me to, you know, it's a, and this is a job. I mean, I was a machinist, you know, and nobody asked me. Well, actually, the management would give you a, a a stamp with your initials on it so you could stamp the parts you made but the, the reason was so they know who to blame if something was wrong um so <laughs> you know why does somebody you know i mean i don't know i, so, I signed it of course but it always seemed kind of odd to me still does to be honest um so what's your funniest interaction with a fan my funniest jesus uh, um, I don't know if I call this funniest, but it was a um, 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 she, she was a fan, but she's also a, a, a dealer, and and uh, I'd run across her number, several times at conventions, and I liked her, and. Uh, she, she came up to me at one of these conventions and she said, Eric, I really love your books, but so, something really bothers me. And I said, what is it? And she said, where are all the queers? Um, and I, I thought, well, okay. Uh, I hadn't actually ever thought about it, but um, we talked 
and uh, I realized part of it was that that there were books of mine she had not read, so that where that issue does come up, it, it came up more often than she thought. But I said, really, it's mostly just I don't think about them. And quite honestly, I mean, you know, I just uh, writers tend to write what they know about, and and um, I, I'm sort of familiar with those subjects from a bit of a distance. My sister's been a lesbian, and you know, I know friends are, but I'm not. So I said, however, I will make it a point in my next book to uh, to, to to bring it in um, because I think it's a good idea. So I did. Uh, the next book was called Time Spike. And I put in uh, one one lesbian and one gay character in it, um, but that was I don't know if you call that funny, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it was just and I like the way she brought it up. I just you know it was just well, she was very uh, point blank about it and very direct. Yeah, yeah, very very point blank and and um, you know I well she also she wasn't being confrontational about it. I mean you know she wasn't sort of you know. Um, she wasn't quite agree, but she was just wondering, I mean, why, you know, why is this? And, um, like I said, she had not read, she had not read my first novel, for instance, Mother of Demons, which, which in one, where the issue of sexual orientation is actually runs all through the book, but, uh, and she had not read Philosophic Strangler, where it comes up also. So part of it was just that she didn't know about some stuff, but, you know, I thought, okay, it's a legitimate question. And uh, and the honest answer was just because I hadn't thought about it. You know, I mean, it really is no more complex than that. Um, so um, I, I enjoyed that interaction. I just, you know, it was nice to, to I don't know how to put it, to run across a fan who actually read your books, cared enough about them, liked them, had something that was bothering her. You know that had to do you know something important to her and just brought her up with you and that that's it's nice to have that kind of interaction with one of your readers um uh, and like i, I said i don't know if i call it funny but um, it's not funny but i think it's a really awesome one and it's very an important one so i you know it, it's it's um i i i have tried to get better about it um uh, there is a tendency authors just tend to you know, it's the old story. You tend to write what you know about, and so it's real easy without really meaning to do anything. You just, you know, you just kind of drift. Um, and it's worth uh, thinking about that as you go along. So I, I've, I, I try to do it since then. Um, and I think generally, um, successfully it's kind of interesting because um I, I find writing female characters very easy uh, and always have um there are a lot of stories i think um and this is not some kind of political statement about feminism or anything like that uh, although i am a feminist but that's not why i do it it's just i think there are a lot of stories that work better with the point of view characters female um, and so, and I've, since I was a teenager, I, it just never seemed odd to me to write, you know, stories with a, a female viewpoint, but I tend not to do that with a, with, when it comes to sexual orientation. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it's not, it's honestly not prejudice on my part. I mean, I've, my sister's a lesbian and 
so were two of my good friends, and I, you know, I mean, it's never been an issue for me, but I, I, it just doesn't, something on my brain doesn't, you know, automatically work that way, so I have to sort of give it some thought, where I don't really have to with women characters. Um, so, anyway, um, anyway, I'm just going to stop there, but that, that, <laughs> okay. I've, always I've always remembered that interaction. Chuck, now that Eric's bought you some time, do you have a good answer? Uh, it would have been actually pretty pretty easy because mine is uh, as as every bit as frivolous as his is serious and full of gravitas. Um, I was um, I was in the back of an auditorium, slightly lately arrived, um, and somebody was uh, was talking about a book that had won an award and they were talking about that they, they, they were looking forward to it. They liked the book. They thought it had a terrible cover. Was I familiar with the book? Yes, I was. Uh, what did I think of the cover? Well, you know, um, it's, uh, it, it, it has its merits. It has its merits. And, and this went on for a while. And, uh, uh, the, the individual said, when did you read it? And I said, right after I finished writing it. Um, so, <laughs> so that was me arriving a little bit late for the start of the awards at where the Compton Crook was, where Fire with Fire won the Compton Crook at uh, Balticon. Oh my goodness! What was the so? I think that qualifies as a funny interaction. Pardon me. What did, it does. What, what is, was the? Re oh, uh, what was the reaction? You know how you you know how you you that you can you can see states of mind change microsecond to microsecond in the human face you know it's it's when somebody is so stunned they're they're not even aware they're stunned then they know they're stunned then they're horrified then they're looking at you to see what you're going to do then they realize you're smiling then they go through that moment of saying is this a good smile or a bad smile? And then the smile turns into a laugh. Then there's the nervous, the, <laughs> the slightly nervous grin that turns into a matching laugh on their part and all as well. All of which takes about 40 seconds for me to describe and takes place in about 0.8 seconds, I would say. <laughs> that qualifies. We will take that answer. I think I would go right, and hide so under a table. And I'm the person who accidentally looked at David Weber and said, I'm not here for your signature. I'm here for that guy's signature because I didn't recognize it was David Weber. And even that, that would be embarrassing more for me and I'd not hide under a table. I probably would not have come out of my room the rest of the con. Well, then think about all you would have missed. All right, so normally we would have you tell us everything you've written, but your bodies of work are so long that I promise you we will link to their websites where they will try to sell you all the things and you can learn about everything they've written. Uh, so instead, we're going to jump right in to the uh, 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. So how did you guys come up with the premise for this story? Uh, um, you've talked about in other interviews, uh, Eric, how you came up with the 1632 premise, but how did you specifically come up with the, the story idea for this uh, specific novel? Oh, boy. Um, well, like, um, as is true with most things in a 1632 series, there's no great overarching plan. They just, just things just sort of happen. Um, 
in this particular case, um, in, in 1632, I introduced four young men. They're, they're, they're teenagers, um, 18. Um, they're high school seniors, all of them, and they're buddies. Um, and one of them becomes one of the major characters of the whole series. That's Jeff Higgins. Uh, two of them wind up getting killed at one point or another. And the fourth one, I originally just saw as a relatively secondary character, his name's Eddie uh, Cochran. And, um, but um, what happened was that when I wrote 1633 with David Weber, um, and I don't remember which one of us actually wrote the scene, um, but there's a, a scene where they attack um, um, Danish warships with a speedboat with an American speedboat armed with rockets and uh, it's effective, but things go awry. And one of the young uh, men, uh, uh, Larry uh, Wilde gets killed and Eddie gets his foot shot off. And the last we see him, he's about to crash into the boat. And so we assume he's dead. It's then discovered at the end of the book that he survived uh, and um, so then I had to pick them up in the next book, which is Baltic War. And I hadn't given any thought to what I was going to do with Eddie when I had him get his foot shot off and dumped in the water. It just seemed kind of nifty. Um, but the next thing I know, I've got another book to write. And so here's Eddie. And I, I don't know where I got the idea, but I thought, I know he's going to get a crush on one of the daughters of the king of Denmark. Um, and and she's a king's daughter, not a princess, because her mother was, uh, it was a morganatic marriage. Her mother was not nobility, and so she's not in line of succession. So that's why she's not officially a princess. She's called, their title is king's daughter. And she's the oldest daughter of, of, uh, of king, uh, um, Christian the fourth, who, by the way, is an absolutely fascinating character. Um, so then I got that romance going between them. And I had a lot of fun with that. Um, and um, he winds up that, which had been started by David Weber in, in a novella he'd written, and he gets hooked up with, with Charles, uh, uh, John Simpson, who becomes an admiral. <laughs> And the next thing we know, uh, because Chuck and I started working at her, so we're kicking around what to do with them. And I have no idea which one of us came up with the idea. Um, maybe Chuck remembers, but we thought, I, can, I know, I can, let's, I can, set, I can, let's I send them off to the Caribbean. Well, actually, have adventures in the Caribbean, and, and we can... And we can Steal a title from C.S. Forrester. We can uh, call Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. That's where the origin of that novel got started. And if I can add in one, one thing, just led to thing we know where, where we got to write a sequel to it, partly because we got a contract, but also partly because we knew where that was going to fit into something else. So we had to figure out a story, and it was Chuck who came up with the idea that they would intercept the 
the silver fleet on the way in rather than on the way out. In other words, they would intercept it when the Spanish fleet wasn't carrying any silver. Um, but they would do it because they would get all kinds of good stuff they needed for the colonies they were setting up. And plus they would, even though they wouldn't get any silver themselves, neither would the Spanish. And the Spanish, uh, uh, whole Spanish kingdom relied heavily upon that annual influx of silver from the new world. Um, so that's where that came from. And, um, then it just becomes a matter of spinning stories out. Um, and um, Chuck and I are both very good at that. Um, and I mean, that's not something either one of us, or certainly not both of us working together, has any difficulty figuring out. Um, so that's kind of how it came about. I mean, there was no grand overall plan from the very beginning. It just kind of... Uh, um, sort of, you know, I mean, a lot of the books are like that. I mean, you know, they just kind of one thing leads to another. It's, it's, it's one of the things I, I wanted to capture in the series, which I think we've done a good job of is, is, is the, uh, I, I think there are real patterns in history. I don't think it's just chaos, but there is a lot of chaotic stuff happens in history where you just don't know, you know, unpredictable stuff happens and, all of a sudden, you got something completely different heading off somewhere. Um, I think Chuck wanted to add something at one point, Chuck. Uh, Go ahead. Well, there. First of all, Eric is sparing me because uh, he uh, because he's he's nicely leaving leaving out one thing which which makes me um, uh, highly uh, highly intentional. <laughs> Uh, what I mean by that is there's something that uh, what was going on was that uh, David Weber, after having uh, originally, as I understand it, as the contracts had to be changed, uh, it was going to be Simpson going to the New World. Well, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, mm -hmm. Simpson was sort of held back because it was because it, David was leaving the series. I had kind of seen that as a likely occurrence, so I wrote this. If you take a look at the um, the scenes involving uh, the the wild geese who uh, take the the who take Trinidad and and that entire sequence in in the first in the first of the Caribbean books originally Eric that was going to be the first thing of mine that Eric was going to publish he had accepted that pretty much on one read and he said I like it I'm going to use it before anything could be done with however the novel that was going to become the Simpson novel. Uh, that was when another um, planned dance partner sort of moved around a little bit. Andrew Dennis was not going to be able to uh, do the next novel in the Papal series or the Papal arc. So all of a sudden, um, a novel that I had never heard of, uh, <laughs> it was at, uh, at the perhaps ill-fatedly named Reconstruction, uh, I think in 2010 or 20, I think it was 2010, 2009, 2010, and Eric said, "We're putting that. We're putting that naval novel on. This got to get this thing. We got to get this papal novel done." It's like, okay. Um, meanwhile, however, as you may, it was clear that the so the wild geese, the Irish wild geese, found their way into that novel, although not the ones who wound up going to the Caribbean. So, who was going to go to the Caribbean if because it was unknown what was going to happen with Simpson? 
And Simpson was a heavy, and I think there was maybe thought that at some point maybe David would come back. I don't know. But I said, well, you know, it would be kind of cool if they weren't actually going as an attack but as a reconnaissance that turns into, oh, my God, we're the fleet in being. And that's really that's, that was sort of the idea. Because one of the things I, I really like to try to do, um, one of Eric's great mottos is, uh, is be, you know, essentially, first of all, vague is your friend. Second of all, writers love problems, and we do. And one of the best problems to, I think, give characters, um, which make, which I think makes people root for them, and they makes them interesting to, to write, is put them in a situation where they have a number of advantages, but they, they but they're short. They're the shorthanded on almost everything else. They're scrabbling for their next meal. They they don't have enough replacements. They don't have a safe port. They've got to answer all these questions. And the, 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 the lineup between the Spanish and this tiny, tiny flotilla, comparatively speaking, that comes into the new world just was filled with possibilities, which, uh, which are still being played out in No Peace Beyond the Line. Um, certainly No Peace Beyond the Line, uh, we, we sat and we thought about some of the other things. Um, we just, uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting because David... And Eric and I bought, all thought that one of the things that should happen is one of the big steamships, one of the most expensive ones, had to get destroyed. Um, and that actually became a major, uh, which, is, which is what you see blowing up in the background there, I believe. Uh, that, is not, that is not some shell going off. That is, if you looked at that cover more closely, is an entire, sh is an entire ship blowing to smithereens. Um, and that, in fact, does happen in the book. And it's a kind of... How that happens is kind of one of my. Yeah, you were asking earlier about the, you know, stories in the book that didn't make it. That was one of the ones that that I really didn't know exactly how that was going to happen, but uh, but it, there's I won't spoil it for anybody, but it um, it, it was and and Eric Eric liked the uh, Eric liked the the suspense of how that was how is this going to happen how are they going to manage not to let this ship fall into Spanish hands, but, uh, but Eddie Cantrell is a pretty resourceful fellow for, and, uh, and proved it yet again. Um, and it was also really, I think the first book where the in, incredible, con we've, we've spoken about this, Eric and I, before that combination, I think he was the one who mentioned it first, the last time we were on is when you have a balloon, I'm not talking about the ones that fly around. It's just something that puts you up in the air and you either have a, a very, very simple wireless or just a cable, a telegraph cable going down, it changes everything. Forget the cannons, forget the steam engines. That sort of advanced lookout and that ability to always know what's going to happen first, whether it's where the enemy is placed or the weather that's coming, um, is just, it, it's, it's, in, it's almost, it, it's, it's impossible to overstate how profound that is. And one of the, that was one of uh, one of the other things that I think was in this book. The thing that, as I think I've said before, that which I did not see coming was that this became a sort of um, the relationship between the nature of the oppression of women as if you will chattel wives at, at the aristocratic level at, at any rate, and, and this sort of the, the broad way that that fit into the entire theme of, slavery of oppressed native peoples and everything that rose up in i think kind of the best way uh that for me which is that if if i had tried to put that in i'd worry about being heavy-handed with it but it was sort of lying all over the place and it was and as it as it came about i said 
this is really this is as much what this novel is about as anything else and um and every once in a while a novel surprises you and if you i think i'm that sort of writer and i think eric is too you 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 go with it and very often it takes you to your very best creative places so okay i like that all right so i will uh link all these uh the the books so you can check them out dear yep. listener uh can you can you hear me yes JR. can you hear me yes i can hear you jr all right perfect no say so all yes. of that if it if that sounds it if that sounds interesting to you will be in the show notes so you can uh um, so you can dig it out yourself. Um, but man, you guys are making us uh, stay on our feet because you're answering them all out of order. But, <laughs> but that's great. Because these, these are not the gentlemen where we have to pull out answers. And that's fun. So, so, when you were, conversation. so when you were writing these, did you lean into the tropes or did you just sort of let the story tell itself in any... Um, relationship to the to the standard tropes was more incidental uh, say, say that again so some people when they write they intentionally lean into the tropes and they use that to sort of build the framework of the story and i've noticed other authors any relation to that is purely incidental and they just tell the story as it needs to be told you know as they figure it out so when you two were writing were you thinking about that uh you know this is this kind of trope we're going to lean into or did it just sort of happen um Okay, um, I myself am a a, a, a plotter. Um, um, and I develop very detailed plot outlines before I start writing a novel, um, which is not something that came naturally to me, but I, I sort of learned to do it from David Drake, um, who was my mentor early in my career. Um, because I find it both improves the novel and also, in the long run, speeds up getting it done. Chuck does the same thing, but doesn't do it the same way I do. Um, and Chuck and I tell stories quite differently in, in some respects. And so what he and I have found works best is our working relationship um, and this, this varies from one collaborator to another. Uh, David Weber and I, for instance, mix it up constantly. I mean, he'll, I was just rereading uh, the, 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 um, that book, just, my copy just came in and I just reading it and I'm trying to remember who wrote this paragraph and, you know, it, it's, some of it was me, some of it I think was him, you know, that's how David and I work together. Chuck and I don't, uh, because uh, he and I actually tell stories rather differently. And so what works better with me and Chuck is he does almost all the writing when we get down to actually writing it. Uh, there might be occasionally something I, I toss in, but, but you know, any, any book that's got my name and Chuck's on it, he'll, he'll have written 99% of the, of the actual text. What the two of us do together is talk through the book a lot ahead of time. 
Um, and, and that really often takes place over a period of years. I mean, because we're not just talking through one book. You and I talk about the series a lot and different ideas we have so that by the time we're ready to start it, which means when he's ready to start writing, we both know quite well what we're doing. I mean, you know, not necessarily all the details, but uh, but broadly speaking. Um, and so these are not, uh, you know, you hear people saying they, they write by the seat of their pants. Uh, no, that's not how we're doing books. Um, now, any book, there's always surprises that come up in the course of actually writing them. That always happens. But that's not the same thing as, as we know what's going to happen in the book, what the broad outlines are, what the basic, you know, elements of it are and so forth. Uh, Chuck, do you think that's a fair characterization? Well, I just came back in this very second, so I have no idea what we're characterizing. I'm on my phone right now. Uh, my my well, computer just uh, it's not liking it. In short, he was saying that uh, you guys talk about it a lot. Then he makes you write it all, and then he goes back and he edits you. No, just like wait, what? We can we can, just, we can just leave it that way. That is not how I put it, but uh, uh, <laughs> no, I, so, I know a bomb for you... when I hear one. That re she got that red hair, you know, because it matches the temperament. I think so. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so Chuck, when you when you write uh, both the sixteen thirty seven, the the No Peace Beyond the Line, and just in general, do you lean into the tropes, or is any trope that occur in your story more incidental to your writing process? Uh it's kind of hard to do this holding the uh, holding the uh, phone. Let me see if I can uh, find a different way to do this. Um, do I lean into the tropes? I don't know. I don't. I, you know, the thing is, I find that if you become, I, I'm hesitant about formulaic writing, about anything that relies upon. Well, go with the theme, or go with the trope, or what's the conflict? You know, human versus human, human versus nature human versus itself, that sort of stuff. It's, I think it's a great way to talk about it at, an, at a sort of basic level, but I don't think it's a way to write it. So I, I, kind, of, um, I kind of follow my gut as, I, as I'm looking at things, but I, I, I use what I, I guess I would say, I use notions of tropes and, and conflicts and structures more to hone. Uh, it's not how I start it's not how I start Rodin's thinker, but it's how I'm going to chip it away to make it look like that. I think I think it was Rodin who, who they they asked him. It's like how do you how do you create these works? And he says I just chip stuff away until it looks like what I want it to look like. And I I, I try not to let I I try not to let myself be too fettered uh, in the initial story process. And then again when I'm writing. Um, the, the individual, I don't even know where the chapters are. I know what I, I, I would, I think of them as beats more than anything else. And I know what I kind of need in the beat, but I do not plot out very strongly how I'm going to get there in terms of conversations. I, I try to leave a lot of room for, for me to discover it as I go to, to sort of be inspired by what I'm, by what feels like the theater 
that's being played out in between my ears. And I, because I think, I think my writing anyhow, I think is more fresh when I do it that way. If I'm working too close to a recipe, I don't think I'll make any mistakes, but I'm, I'm not in this game to avoid making mistakes. Okay. That's a good answer. I like it. Do you have any set bad guys in this novel? Any what bad guys? Any bad guys. Like these are the oh, bad yeah. guys. Oh yeah. There are huge numbers of bad guys in this novel. Okay. Uh, you want, can you tell us a little bit about any of them without giving away too many spoilers? Yeah. One uh, thing. That, okay. Go ahead. One thing I was very pleased about the book is, um, um, and and Chuck and uh, Robert Waters did the same thing with their book they had come up with uh, earlier called Calabar's War. Um, there's no romanticization of pirates in this book. Um, um, we depict the brutality of the time quite, quite, I'll say graphically for lack I of think- Every novel in this universe makes me very glad to live in the century I live in. And it's not just every novel in this universe makes me glad to live in this century. (laughs) Every single one of them. And it's not just for the plumbing. Um, So um, I've forgotten where I got started with this, but um, um, you, the bad guys, and you said they. Well, yeah, well, see, here's the thing. It, it depends what you mean by a villain. Um, and, and this is true not just of this series, but pretty much anything I write. Um, there are very few major characters who are villains as such in my fiction. There are some, but not many. Um, mostly they're. They're they're the opposition, and they often have some rather unfortunate traits, we'll call it. But I, I try to make it clear that that they're they're doing things for a reason. They're not just you know twirling their you know mustachios because they enjoy pulling wings off of flies and stuff. Um, so Cardinal Richelieu is depicted that way. Wallenstein's depicted that way. You know, uh, there are many of the major characters. But then you run across other characters, and there are quite a few in this book. They're just thugs. I mean, there's no other really way to describe them. Um, and um, that's how we depict them, you know. I mean, it, it's um, we're not really interested in the thugs' mommy issues. If, yeah, if I can pull three examples, um, we run into, uh, and, and Eric actually, I was afraid, Eric's initial reaction made me think that, uh, that I'd gone too far with the depiction of the, uh, the pirate sack of uh, Curacao, um, which is really a, it was intentionally, and as a matter of fact, I make reference to it. It's like, it's a little bit like if you see those those uh, uh, canvases by Bruegel, right? Where where it's sort of like you know uh, souls descending to hell, and they're they're those sort of big tableau sort of things. And and this was this was the pirates given the imprimatur by the Spanish Empire to sort of root out, but root out meant 
rape, pillage, burn, torture, crucify, etc. And it was, I, it, it wasn't, uh, hmm, how would I put it? I wouldn't say that the representation was prurient. It did not, it did not uh, loiter on, on pointless, on pointless details of, of what was going on, but it was, it was meant to be disturbing. And actually, uh, it was Eric who said, because there was one guy uh, who, who was called Diego Grifo, who, who this was his breaking point. Uh, he's, he was a, a person of mixed parentage to begin with. And he, when he leaves, uh, Eric said, you know, when he sees that there's that kid that we saw that was sort of crying against the wall, have him, have him take that kid out, which I thought was, you know, Eric is being a wuss. Eric, you were a wuss. No, <laughs> but, but but it was but it was just that it was just that that I think shocking a scene. Um, then you've got a, a, one of my favorite one of my favorite villains that I've ever written, certainly in 1632, a person based on a his, uh, a Frenchman a historical by the name of Desnambouc. and Desnambouc is a is an absolutely ruthless operator. Uh, who, stra who straddles the line between privateer and sort of national agent for France, but uh, is but he loves his nephew. He absolutely loves his nephew, and 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 so you've got that humanizing element in there, and um, and then you've got the, there's another one uh, historically based um, uh, Alvaro, uh, Alvaro de Toledo, who is a Spanish commander. Who is definitely not on the right side of this conflict or history, but he's he's this sort of individual who's basically saying Spain is going to get us screwed. All of the problems back in Spain, all of the debauchery, all of the the excess, all of the fact that they're not they've never seen this or had to do this themselves. And he sort of sets out, okay, so what are what can we work with? To, to get more even footing, because if this goes on, we're in trouble. And by the end of the book, they have, they've started achieving just that. As a matter of fact, in a strange way, uh, we were, uh, Eric was talking earlier about, um, about uh, the, you know, one of the, the notions was that the take, hitting, the, hitting the armada coming in, first of all, means you get all, their, all of the supplies. And the, the Dutch and the other allies are like, well, we can't eat gold and silver anyhow, so that's what we need. And we get they capture a lot of those ships. That was also very important. But the mere fact that now it's going to be two, it's going to be a two-year interval before silver comes back, and this basically allows the 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 at this point in the New World, most of the emphasis, the power, sort of in Cuba for the most part, particularly because that's where all the treasure ships leave before they go overseas and where they built ships in the new world. Historically, they'd been told not to. And this was the moment where the Spanish say, you know what? Oh, sorry, we'd, we'd listen to what, you were, what you're saying, but we kind of have this situation, so we're gonna have to build ships. Hope it's okay with you. And, and so there you've got this, this, this guy who's quote, he's on, he's on the opposing force. He's not on the right side of history. He's not a great guy. But he is a—he's an absolutely capable individual who's determined to try to do right by his oath and by his side in a in a somewhat honorable fashion. So you've got this real rainbow, I think, uh, a real spectrum of what it means to be a villain represented just in this book.
Awesome. Okay, so you've mentioned both uh, Eric and Yuchuk mentioned some some historic characters that you put into this novel. So when you wrote these historic characters, how true to the actual person did you stay? Uh, did you stay when you're describing both their personality and just in general? If go ahead. Do you want? Who do you want to start with? <laughs> uh, either one of you can answer. Eric, go ahead. Uh, Eric, how? Uh, Okay, well, let me start with 1632. Um, the, the two big villains there are um, Cardinal Richelieu of France and, um, and Wallenstein, the, uh, the great, um, not so much great general, the great military contractor of, of Central Europe. Um, yeah. um, but the reason I made them the villains was because I needed really smart people to make the thing work. And they were both extremely capable, smart people. And um, Schiller in his plays turned Wallenstein into a hero. Um, I would not have any trouble writing an altered history with Richelieu as, as, as not the good guy, but the hero. Uh, he was quite an impressive guy. Um, and and neither one of them did stuff just for the sake of, of, you know, of being evil or anything like that. They had reasons why they were doing what they were doing. Um, and that kind of continued on from there in, in, in succeeding novels. I mean, they, the, currently one of the big villains, we'll call him, is uh, the emperor of the... Uh, Ottoman Empire, Murad IV. And he's often depicted in, in some histories as a kind of monster, but it's not how we depict him in, in the series. Um, and that's just because I think it makes for a more interesting story than just, you know, good guys and bad guys. Um, there are some exceptions, but I think in all, of all the, in all the novels I've written, the only major character I can think of who's just a pure villain is a character in the Belisarius series by the name of Vedanta Katra. And, and he's just a monster. I mean, they're, 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 the man has absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And I kept him alive for three, uh, seven, no, five books until I very lovingly and gruesomely killed him off in the fifth book. That was a lot of fun. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I've been playing that for a long time. Um, but um, that, that's kind of the way the, the, the series generally reads. When you do run across people you think of as just straight villains, it's like the characters that Chuck's talking about in the, uh, you know, in this book, there are pirates, you know, there are. Uh, you, you run across similar characters elsewhere, you know, you're basically thugs. Um, and there's, you know, not much good to be said about them. Um, but you can't do very much with characters like that. So, you know, well, uh, they tend to be kind of secondary. You, you mentioned killing so, off. So hmm? I don't really, what? I'm sorry. So, uh, Chuck. I, I was going to ask that same question. So, Chuck, when you carry, when, and it doesn't have to just be the villains, but when you bring in characters that actually existed in history, how true to their personality and, and biography do you stick? 
uh, when you write them? Do you just as as close as, as historical record allows? And frequently, the historical okay. record is pretty thin. You've got some really important historical characters in this one. Uh, for instance, Admiral Trump, and we have a lot uh, of of data on him. Uh, he wrote a lot, and a lot was written about him. A number of his admirals uh, or or the other or the other officers there, same thing. Um, the case of the Earl of, of Tyrconnell, um, uh, Hugh O'Donnell, there's a fair amount on him too. And I tried in each case, I tried to keep them pretty close to what we know, but you know, how can, how can I put it? I'm not going to let that make me crazy for the simple reason that with the exception of Trump in this, in this particular, uh, novel, the, you've got. You're, you're talking about one, maybe two biographical sources, which are not very detailed. The Spanish at this time in this theater are far more, are far better documented. Um, although there you have the problem that, you know, in the same way that, uh, as they say, winners, winners write the histories. To, so you find out, you know, winner, it's the winners who write the histories of the wars. In the same way, it's people in favor at court who wind up shaping biographies for good or for bad. And certainly that was very, very true. That was one of the problems with the Spanish court. So you have some of the, some of the characters that uh, all, all the, the main Spanish individuals, even down to some of the sergeants. Um, it was interesting because I was able to at least pull names out of historical records. Um, I always tried to, to find a little bit out to give me that sort of sense of, of a connection to somebody who had some sort of traits that were identified in the historical record and put them in the place. For instance, there was a fair amount known uh, at this time regarding the, the person who would be the governor general of Havana in Cuba and also in Cartagena. Those two were pretty well-known individuals. Um, so I, I used them as much as I could. And the Dutch settlers, they're all based on individuals who are out of the out of the historical records? All of the um, all of the individuals who come out of Recife and ultimately are settling in in Saint Eustatia. Uh, once again, in some case, in one or two cases, we know a decent bit about them. In the other cases, all we know is who they were antagonistic with and their names, and maybe when they when they died. Um, so it's a it runs a gamut really in terms of how much information you have. So the less information I have, the less Eric has a lovely saying about this series, which is if something, if only five people on planet earth are going to know that you've got something wrong or you fudge something, don't worry about it. Just <laughs> if it makes a better story, just go with it. And that's wise indeed, because usually those five people who think they know better, the personality type there, I, I emphasize, they think they know better. And they, they, they very often tend to be the type of people, it seems to me, at great remove, they, they seem to be the type of people who look for opportunities to let you know that they know better. So I really haven't found myself overly, uh, overly constrained or concerned with, the, uh, with the, uh, what I'll call the, the complaints about marginalia. So yeah, what I was trained as a professional historian, and... To give an example, a man who was a friend of mine, I haven't seen him many years now. I'll be right back. And he's a uh, professor at UCLA, which is where I met him, uh, of English history. His name's Bob Renner. 
and he wrote a advanced a thesis about um, an important issue in British history, which is where and how did the um, did the capitalist class emerge in Britain? And it's prominent enough. It's called the Brenner thesis, and there have been books written about it, and colloquiums held, and 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 people arguing pros and cons on both sides. And a friend of mine was one of his research assistants and spent two years doing the detailed research of reading ship's manifests and stuff to try to, you know, get all this out. And after 50 years, it's still being debated. Okay. So whenever anybody tells you, well, we know for sure. No, you don't. Not something that's happened 300, 400 years ago. There's just too much data has gone missing. Um, there's too much is not quite clear. And, you know, you can, so that's why I don't get too hung up on, on details once you get down to, you know, it's so, obscure enough that it's very hard to know. One of the things I do try to do when it's possible is use characters in the alternate history um, who, who died early so that you don't really, for instance, a major character in the series is a, is a, a prince of, of Denmark, Prince Ulrich. Um, and he, he's a major character in a number of novels. And the reason I, I, I picked him is that of the three sons of King Christian who were in line of inheritance, he was murdered in the early in his early 20s, a very strange murder, was never solved. So nobody really knows anything about him. And so we can kind of shape him as a character kind of any way we want. When you take into account the fact nobody knows anything about him, he died young, and he's being cast into a completely changed history. So it's like, you know, go ahead, prove us wrong. Um, um, as much as possible, try to do that. You can't always do it. I mean, you, you know, if, if you're going to work in this period and you're going to bring France into it, you got to deal with Cardinal Richelieu, and a lot's known about him. Same is true with Gustavus Adolphus and a lot of other characters. But um, um, you can fudge a lot of stuff, too. So one of my favorite questions of the night kind of ties a bit into this and knowing who people are. But if your characters met you and they knew who you were, how do you think they would respond? Inventing what? If your characters met you, like in a back alley someplace, and they knew who you were, how would they respond? And all the things that you have done to their lives. That's who the character is. Um, some of them would be very pleased. Um, others, not so much. Um I can tell you one thing that I am finding amusing as time goes on is you will be surprised by now if you Google lots of historical data, especially of known characters in, in this period of history, you'll often find the major uh, reference that comes up is something from the 1632. Yeah, increasingly so. It, 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 it's hysterical. It's it's something, it, it's a phenomenon anthropologists are quite familiar with. It's it's a problem they always have when they try to record 
because usually I have to do it verbally, record, you know, the traditional customs of a given tribe. And, and what they discovered uh, was that they were often getting feedback from 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 the, the natives who were figuring, what do these people really want to hear? And then they would come up with whatever they thought the story would be uh, that the European scholar would most find interesting. Um, so uh, you get some of that in this too. I don't know. I think a lot of the characters, um, most of them actually, I think would be okay. You know, I mean, there would be some. Um, King Charles would not uh, approve of the portrait we do of him. Um, um, certainly, um, and most Spanish characters wouldn't, especially top characters. Um, I think most of them would be interested, at least. And and wouldn't feel like it was just you know a grotesque caricature. Let's put it that one. Of course, so, that's so just my true. guess. They might run me through with a sword. I mean, you know, hard to know. I think actually, we're, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Eric. Well, fortunately, it's never going to happen, so we're not going to find out. <laughs> never say never. That's what I say. Anyhow. Um, I would say that, that several of them would be very happy. Um, and this is not just me. This is uh, on a number of the, of the characters that are probably amongst the downtimers, the ones native to uh, this, the, the world of 1632 uh, would be very grateful. And they would, they would approach Eric or me, depending on who was responsible for this, because different of us were responsible for different things. They'd say, thank you for keeping me alive. As in Prince Ulrich, as in <laughs> as in um, as in his younger sister, that the the uh, the Danish uh, king's daughter, who actually drowned in a moat. Another very it, there were a couple of a, a couple of very mysterious deaths surrounding various of Christian IV's uh, um, two at least of his offspring, and in many ways considered the most promising. So that that adds extra spice and speculation to it. Um, the Earl of Turconnell dies in a battle and is, uh, and is, uh, he, he goes, he has a very, very different life course that does not end well um, in, in actual history. Uh, a whole lot of individuals, I think, would be very grateful to Eric and to me that they're actually around. And as soon as they left, somebody like Desnambuk would come up to me and he would be, I'm sure, fiddling around casually with the dagger and saying, now, I could ask you if you like silver or your life, but I would prefer to be shown in a slightly more positive light, <laughs> which is pretty much exactly the way he would say it. Um, uh, because as is often the case, as shown, you know, as used in, in so much literature influenced by these, these tropes, uh, serpents very often have the smoothest of all times. So, um, so I think we get a very a very broad very broad set of reactions. Well, that seems very okay. fair. So, can you give us a sneak peek of how the sausage was made? Were there any cool scenes or ideas you had to cut from the final books that you hope to find a way to use someday? Uh, 
Wait a minute. You got to tell them who you want to answer first. Uh, well, okay. Well, Eric, what I was saying was, can you give us a sneak peek about how the sausage was made? Was there anything that you guys wrote for this book that you ended up having to cut for the final product that you want to use in another book? Um, possibly, but um, I think I'm trying to, you know, Chuck can, can correct me if you don't agree. I think most of what we cut from this book was sort of duplication. I mean, you know, stuff that was just kind of, um, we didn't need it. And um, I'm not sure it would be suitable for the for the basis of uh, of a different, I mean, the other material that we've taken out of stuff we have used, but I'm not sure there was anything in here. Can you think of anything, Chuck? Yeah, well, I think the thing you're talking about, that was the part at which actually got written. Uh, which would I would call the 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 ongoing woes of Sophie the misfortunate, um, which Eric said this you got you got to lighten up on this Chuck. We get the idea that this 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 poor woman has just been through a terrible time. Take some of the take some of that out. It was a really good suggestion. Some of the things that got cut earlier got cut simply because the book became immense. There was originally planned for the book um, something that will happen in um, in War to the Knife, uh, which is the the Spanish um, attempt to uh, eliminate the um, the the uptimer base, in, at, well, the Dutch uptimer base in Saint Eustatia. But there are two things. There's a there's a very long range uptimer cannon that has been decommissioned it's useful again but they don't have the mount for it it actually was from it was a much bigger gun than the ones than one of they it was a it was a gun they took off of one of the ships and um it was and what the 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 trick to this is that you have radios now and you have telegraphs you also have something which is called an aquilator which we owe to rick boatwright Normally, I would not give this away, but in order to remember Rick, who we lost to pancreatic cancer not more than two months ago, or not much more than two months ago, yeah. um, uh, it, this, the Aquilator was largely his baby. The idea of can you make a computer that works basically on fluidics to trip circuits, to, to use the sort of calculation process of, of, if you will, gates and flows instead of electron flows in, in wires. Well, as, as uh, I know I'm dealing with two veterans here, so all I'm going to say is if you've got a long-range weapon with a rifled barrel that actually never gets a chance to be used to its full potential because of sighting issues, but you have good long-range optics and now you have range markers in the form of buoys and you have a computer, you know what? You're going to be doing things with shore artillery that are absolutely beyond the, the the level of expectation and comprehension. So there was a there was a defense of uh, of Saint Eustatia uh, that was uh, that did not get shown in this book, uh, Orangestat. But um, but thanks to Rick Boatwright and what he gave to the series in so many ways, um, it's all but it's all but written. I mean, I've got it, it. I was ready to go with it, but I looked at the word count and I said, nope. And it, it works. It will work actually probably even better in the next one. But um, 
as Eric said, I don't think either one of us uh, have a problem with coming up with stories. Uh, and uh, and and at the end of the day, it's usually it's you know we we enjoy the feast rather than the famine, and that gives us more stuff that we push forward. And when we push it forward, it may get repurposed a little bit, but usually um, it tends to uh, it tends to age well, and uh, and often be improved by that the extra time and consideration. I think. Okay. All right, Doc, you get to ask him the fun tech question before we wrap it up because we're almost at two hours. Well, normally we ask about what tech you'd want, but since this is alternate history, what tech, if you're back in 1637, would you miss the most? Uh, and, and Eric. Eric, you can answer first. What would I miss the most? What technology would you miss the most if you were trapped in 1637? <laughs> All kinds of medical stuff, uh, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, I think that's it, really. Um, um, Modern medicine? It's a good answer. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, uh, you get, I'm at the age now where you are much more conscious of this stuff than I was, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and, uh, <laughs> How many ways that 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 modern? It's not just medicine; it's medical care and knowledge and, and a whole panoply of stuff. Um, um, makes your life both tends to make it longer, but also tends to make it less uh, uh, painful or stressful, whatever you want to call it. Um, um, so I think that'd probably be it. Um, um, I, I would uh, say modern plumbing, but we've already established in the series that they can take care of that. Um, not, you know, most people don't get it, but it can be gotten. Um, so I would say uh, the, the one other thing, because I once spent a summer um, working construction crew up in the mountains of California where I was sleeping with the rest of the crew, the three of us, on in a literally in a log cabin that had no running water, uh, only a wood stove to cook on and an ice box and no electricity. And um, I like to read and reading at night with no electricity is a royal pain in the ass. It, it can be done, but um, if you've never lived without electricity, you don't quite grasp what a uh, pain in the ass it is. So that would be one of the things. All right. What about you, Chuck? What would you miss the most if you got so Eric took medical? And that's one of the ones that I would miss, and not just for myself, but I mean, all the the when you have kids. And, and you, you know, at, at particularly back in that time, the, the number of ways, there's a reason why mortality was so high at the two extremes of the, of the, of the age bell curve. And the, I think the, the daily terror of a parent, you know, uh, because, because if I go back, I'm not sitting there because I'm who I am, but I think also because it's, we're post, post Nietzschean and 
was Kierkegaard. You know, we're we're not sitting there saying, oh, well, it's it's you know. I would go back, not say I would not go back and have all of a sudden magically the mindset that this is part of some grand plan unfolding. I'm thinking yeah. I'm going back with my mindset, which is that's my child. I want to save my child and I can't do it anymore. You know, and and I have right. and, and I, I may have more knowledge in certain ways than the doctors of that time that would be productive to that. And of course, no one's going to believe me. Um, I would I would say that just on the level one and I touch on this actually in in one of the scenes in in uh, No Peace Beyond the Line there's another historical character who wrote one of the largest treatises on on the the natural um the plants the fl the flora and the fauna of Brazil and South America. He was a, he was a, also a physical doctor. He was a um he was a uh, a Morano so he was a um he was a, a uh, if a, a, a covert a, a, a Jewish person who was covert in his Judaism, um, his name was Brindau. And Brindau, uh, in this case, is, is alive and, and well, old. But what he says is the big, one of the biggest things you've done is we used to have all people in different parts of the globe, doctors, we see the same things, but we call them by different names and we've observed different features. He said, your, your high school library has presented, we all now can speak the same language. We all have this, this sort of this basis of data that allows us to, to talk and, and, and to know what to look for, what we've seen it in different places. So this, this medical thing is, is I think a very real issue. Probably the, there's, there's two different answers I'd give to per technology, one personal and one social. Personal because I'll see it day by day, minute by minute, which is, I'm not, I wouldn't miss this. I would not miss social media at all. <laughs> I wouldn't, but I would miss the ability to do what I've been able to do the past four or five years when my son has been in Italy in the army or we're traveling someplace and we want to talk to our kids or, or friends, that ability to get a phone and speak to the other side of the globe, to the people we love, to the people we care about, not having that, I'd miss that. Not that I want to use it every day, not that I do use it every day, but I like to know it's there. And that connects to what I would call the big, the big picture item, which is I would miss the technology, this is going to sound weird, of mass production. Because when you have to produce everything individually without any replaceability of parts or interchangeability of parts, every resources, good things are rare and people are going to fight over them. I mean, I'm not saying that people won't fight over good things anyhow. God knows we've got people doing that now. But it was it when you can make more objects that can make life better, at, at least you can begin to attack some of the problems of want that are, are so prevalent at this time. Those are the ones I know. Philosophical answer to uh, to close this out. So uh, if you want more, we will link in the show notes all of their social media, their contacts, uh, a Wikipedia page for 1632 and the bibliography if you want to read it in order. But uh, as we wrap this up, um, Eric, can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you? Um, well, if you want to run across that, I'm probably on Facebook more than anywhere else. Uh, so I have a Facebook page. You can always come there. Um I'd say that's probably the best way to run across me. Um, 
Um, well, you can come into Bain's Bar, too. Uh, I show up there, but that's... Um, and um, I do have a website. It's ericflint.net, but um, I'm not there regularly. I'm in a post on it, but I'm not... It's not a place I hang out, so to speak. So I think that's about it. All right, and what about you, Chuck? Where could uh, listeners who want to connect with you find you? And and as I as I find myself eating my own words, why on social media? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that one-liner, Jr. That was a great setup. Um, but uh, but but frankly, the best place to find me is on my really uh, astoundingly lively. I say because I'm not the one mostly responsible for it. Uh, group page on Facebook, um, and uh, there's there's probably there's at least a couple. I would say there are at least half a dozen posts a week, and sometimes you get hundreds. Literally, you know, the threads go on and on and on. So there's a lot of activity there. Most of the conversation probably follows around my science fiction series, but it it does work a little bit outside that. And we're uh, you know, and the moderators and administrators are very good about uh, about. Um, making it a welcoming place for all. That's the place to find me. Okay. And you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. We do have an email address, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We promise we answer it at least once a year. We do have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen. Facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, Facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. And finally, you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I will keep Doc Saska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. No such thing. <laughs> or as we always say, you can also support us over at anchor.fm <laughs> backslash blasters tech and tech blades, where they have a Patreon type model that you can have a reoccurring subscription there. Uh, all of the help is duly appreciated. You, um, the year is for us is about over for our, for our podcast season one. And with your contributions, you help pay for the, the overhead. So we had a net neutral, which is all we, we hope to do. And we greatly appreciate all of you that uh, contributed. So, so thank you on behalf of Nick Garber, who is busy doing his day job and drawing me some new comics. J.R. Hanley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time, same place. We're indulging our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, picking on J.R., things that go boom, and of course, all the good books. And pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. It does.